from the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! Welcome in Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, February 20th, the year of our Lord, 2022, jam-packed, high atop downtown, vibrant Nashville, Tennessee tonight. 63 degrees today, I think. Lovely. And that is in advance of inevitable flooding that will come this week. But we have got a loaded show tonight. Got to pour one out, do we, for the expansionist crowd out there. Tough week for them, but I'm not here to gloat tonight, although we could. What I do want to do, so I was thinking long and hard about this over the weekend, is I want to remind you there's a whole lot more common ground between the expansionists and the four and no more crowd than you may think. I think you may be surprised, and we're going to get into it in just a couple of minutes. LSU Mood Tracker tonight. Miami, they're doing some things. Mario Cristobal's doing some things. I can't help but feel partially responsible because most of this staff started to get put together after, after he came on a late kick. We can do that for you. For that, re- for that matter, any other coaches out there that need a little boost, we got some openings. We will fit you in. Nick Saban could be a mob boss, you know? Anytime he's got a live mic in his hand, the things that come out of his mouth no longer just sound like that of a football coach. It really could be a scene from The Sopranos. I know a lot of you have already seen a clip that floated around out of Nick Saban's mouth last week. If you haven't, I'm going to play it tonight, and I'm going to give you a few thoughts on it because a lot of you were asking about it, so we'll get into that. Reminder, big reminder here, and then a, a question for you. Make sure you're following on the Twitter and Instagram channel. So the socials are all the same. It's at Late Kick Josh. A few of you will remember, what would it have been, Colin, about a year, a little over a year ago, we debuted this concept called the Show Owners Association Meeting. And the entire concept was, it, since we were all quarantined and we were doing Zoom for every facet of our lives anyway, I just sat in a studio and we brought dozens of you on at a time. And we had this round table and you know, we just kind of called it a show owners association meeting. It was invite only. It wasn't open to the public. But if you were part of our family, then on an invite only basis, we had a little lottery and we selected some of you. Well, since then, they have invented this new concept called Twitter Spaces. They're fascinating. I think you'll be, I think you'll be completely engulfed in those come football season when you really see how those operate. But before that, I want to know, do you want to kind of morph what used to be the show owners association in concept? over to Twitter spaces, because that's kind of open to everyone. And you can raise your hand and get called on so we can do all that. But here's what I need to know. Number one, are enough of you into it? I think the answer is going to be yes, but I also thought that you would want to change our music and you didn't. So who knows? But then if you are into it, I need to know a reasonably agreed upon time of the week when we can execute this. Some of you work during the day. Some of you, like me, don't have real jobs, so you can just do whatever you want to at 11 o'clock in the morning. So we got to figure that out. So hit me up, DMs, or you can just do it publicly and let me know, and uh, I'll let you know some of the ideas. And then when we narrow it down, I guess I'll just put up a poll and we can vote on it. And with that out of the way, let's dive into more pressing matters at hand tonight. This week, the big story in college football was obviously the college football playoff will not expand until at least 2026. And to be honest with you, listening to the decision makers in the room, I don't have a ton of confidence right now about any expansion format. Now, I'm not going to rehash my feelings on this in the immediacy because you know what my feelings are. My stance on expansion is well established. I couldn't care less about it. I am anti-expansion. A lot of you disagree with me. We've gone over that. But I want to address that disagreement in just a couple of minutes, not in a debate format. Not really here to change your mind. If you're open to it, then we can talk on the side. I'm not here to do that. But here's what's kind of weird about the whole thing. For a long time, This past summer, I thought it was inevitable that expansion was imminent. Remember when they put out that proposal, that 12-team proposal, and it sounded like it was all but a formality. And you got to think, reasonable minds agreed that if they're going to allow an actual format to be out there, then they're well down the road. And it's just I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed, but (laughs) this thing's thing's inevitable, right? Well, it wasn't. But I was so convinced that expansion was imminent I kind of stopped talking about it on the show. I was depressed. I was saddened. I was, uh, dare I say, dismayed and disheartened. But I was going to roll with it and we were going to make the best out of it. But I didn't do many segments on it. So we got into the season and we talked about football because that's what we talk about during the season. 
And then you start hearing whispers that maybe it's not quite as decided as it looks like. And so I start getting a little confidence about myself, but I don't want to get worked up too much. But I'm asking, is really there anything anyone can do? I mean, even if this microphone has a lot of power behind it, is there really anything we can do? It's out of our hands at this point. But I started to wonder, what is the best tool to fashion to fight against expansion? And you know, it turns out the best weapon that we ever could have found to fight against playoff expansion was a pair of sunglasses and a lawn chair. All you had to do is sit out in your front yard. They were going to screw it up just fine on their own. And they did. Now, you think they screwed it up. I think what happened is beautiful, but I do want to just table that for a second, okay? Because there are a lot of folks who think expansion is integral to the overall health and wellness of the sport. There are people like me who completely laugh at that notion. It's okay to debate these sorts of things, okay? It's okay, but I want to ask you to join me in doing one thing tonight. And I am talking to you, the expansionist crowd, because I know we have a sizable portion of you even in our audience. I don't think you're bad people. I think you're good people that just happen to have a bad idea here. I hope you think of me the same way. We can debate all we want to. We can have whole shows worth of debate. I'm not really here to do that tonight. What I am here to do, though, is ask you, before we take another step further down the road of debating expansion or contraction or staying the same, can we just agree on one thing here? Can we agree that neither of us is really interested in the sweater vest bureaucrat crowd telling us what's best for the overall health of college football? Can we please agree that if the suit you're wearing costs more than what we make in an average week, and trust me when I say we, I get it, the sample department was a big part of my life. That fabric warehouse, local news was a huge chunk of my life. If you're wearing a suit that's worth more than we're making in a calendar week, can we please just agree that that crowd probably doesn't feel the same way we do when we talk about the overall health and what's best for college football. Can we agree with that? Because we're loyal to Saturday. They are loyal to a number, and that's it. And so what I'd really love for both of us to do is I'd love for us to be like, uh, what was it, 2002, maybe, one Royal Rumble. It was Steve Austin and Triple H, and they're going at it. But every time a new participant entered, they put their disagreement on pause so they could eliminate another wrestler. That's kind of what I want us to do. It's fine. We can go at it. And we can put our knives away for a second and we can watch the sweater vest crowd, the bow tie crowd, step to a podium when they haven't come to an agreement talking about what is and isn't necessary for the overall health and wellness of college football. And we can just take the index finger and press it against the lips and say, shh, go out in the hallway, go sit by the garbage. We've got this. Shut the door and then we can get back to what we really disagree on because our motivation is really the same. You and I, the expansionist crowd versus the four and no more crowd, 95% of us want the same thing. We just differ in how we best feel we can get there. That crowd out in the hallway, we can talk openly now that they're out of the room, they don't even start from the same premise we do. They're not loyal to Saturday. They're not loyal to Saturdays in the fall. That's not what they care about. They truly believe that it's a beautiful thing to watch college football teams go against each other in in lifeless NFL venues in January. They truly love that stuff. They, they love the corporate suites. They've never sat on metal bleachers before. These people have never painted their chest or their face. They couldn't care less about that stuff. They have a driver go fill their car so they don't even have to touch the same gas pump as you and I do. They don't care. So that crowd's in the hallway. I hope we could have agreed at least on that. Now, where you and I disagree fundamentally, is not on whether we value Saturday. Of course we're loyal to Saturday. The folks who want expansion love Saturdays just as much as I do. I know that. I'm not ignorant enough to believe otherwise. There's a lot of common ground here. And the more I was thinking about it over the weekend, there's a lot more common ground between the crowd who wants to expand and the crowd like me who wants to either sit here or go backwards, back in time, than it ever appeared on the surface. We all value Saturdays. If I were to poll the expansionist crowd and ask them, do you love the regular season in college football? 95% of you would say yes, and the other five are just, that's the crowd who wouldn't agree with you that the sky's blue. Everyone loves it. Amongst us, everyone loves it because we're actual real college football fans. We're not loyal to anything other than really our interest in Saturday. And we also love the concept of a champion being crowned. Where we differ fundamentally is we differ in how much we think an expanded postseason 
would negatively impact the regular season. And then at a far more, a far more like elementary level, you and I disagree on how important the playoffs should be, period. And so I was scrolling through Twitter the other day when this news broke. And it was a guy by the name of Greg Tepper, who I thought summed it up beautifully. And in part, actually, you know what? I took a screenshot of the tweet. Listen to this. Because this encapsulates exactly what we have talked about on this program for a long time. But in order to understand this, I don't need you to take one step back. If you're an expansionist, I will ask you to do this for me. Take 10 steps back. I mean, back way away where you can see everything. Don't go 10,000 feet. Go 50,000 feet. Just hit the reset button for a second. Just humor me for a second. And I want you to think about this sport as if you just walked in the door. Here's what Greg Tepper said. He said, what makes college football fun is the depth of storylines and the unique journey each team takes, but we've been conditioned to believe in this sport, if you're not first, you're last. I have found that to be a pretty unfulfilling way to consume the sport. Especially, here's where I really want you to pay attention, especially in a clearly inequitable sport with a handful of obvious haves and have-nots, worrying about which guy is the most handsome doesn't seem all that interesting. And then I'm gonna add at the end, when the guys don't have the same thing to work with to begin with. In life, we call that genetics. In college football, we call that resource. What has bothered me, and again, we're taking 10 steps back here. You know, if you've watched the show for a long time now, what's bothered me at the core is the concept of applying Sunday principles to the Saturday game. I never push back against the NFL. I never rail against their postseason format. They can make that thing as big as they want. They can take 20 teams for all I care. I've never pushed against it because it makes sense to have an expanded postseason in the pro game because everything about the pro game is built on the foundation of an equitable approach. In other words, it's meant to be a vice. It's meant to punish you the more successful you are and push everything to the middle to where on any given Sunday, it's why one of the most successful football movies ever had that name attached to it, on any given Sunday, anything can happen. That's never been the case in college football. Quite literally, regardless of what the statistics crowd tells you, if I put Miami of Ohio on the same field as Alabama, you're getting the same result a million times out of a million. To pretend that 130 teams play the same sport is laughable. It's always been laughable to me, but there's nothing wrong with the actual structure of the game. What's wrong, as Greg Tepper very, very astutely pointed out, is to pretend that if you're not in playoff contention, which realistically, like 5 or 10% of the sport has any chance to ever be, that you're a failure, that you're last, and that you should be disappointed in your outcome. That's the part that's laughable. The reason I asked you to take 10 steps back instead of just look at it from a different angle is because you need to go back a little ways. And if you're 19, 22 years old, we got a huge college audience. You guys really don't remember a time wherein this sport did not revolve around the playoff. You grew up in the who's in era, as we like to call it. I will credit ESPN for dropping that this past year as part of their marketing campaign. Damage done, but credit the four-letter network at the very least for dropping that as part of the college football marketing campaign. But you grew up in the who's in era. And so I understand that everything about your perception of this sport has who's in baked into it. Like the playoff is the center of your college football universe. But when you take 10 steps back, you can think of a time, some of you lived through it, most of you lived through it, some of the younger crowd hasn't, but think of a world where the playoff is there, the national championship is there, but it's not even remotely what the sport revolves around. If you're Oregon State and Vegas has the over-under at four and a half for total wins, and you're going into that last week in November against Oregon, and you've already won seven games, and you're on the precipice of winning eight games and doubling your preseason win total, it means the entire world to you. And there used to be a time not too long ago where that's all that mattered. That Saturday in the fall, that's all that mattered. And you were about to throw a ticker tape parade in Corvallis, Oregon, even though you lost four games. Why? Because your expectation level was properly calibrated. It wasn't attached to this foolish notion of who's in. There was a world where we had a national championship, but Saturdays in the fall, that's what the sport revolved around. And then a crowd came in, and they said, you can keep all that and also have this big playoff apparatus attached to the end of that season. You've already seen what four teams worth of a playoff 
has done to that concept. I think it's very foolish, and those of us in my camp think it's very foolish to assume that more of what caused the initial problem will solve the problem. Now that, at its very, very core, has been my approach to this. But I want to follow it up with this idea. Whether you like it or not at the moment, we've got what we've got for the next few years. So I would just, I would encourage you, since you can't do anything to change it, you're, you're as powerless as I am to change it, I would encourage you, at the very least, over the next few seasons, to approach college football and your own viewing experience and your rooting experience with the mentality that Saturdays in the fall are what are totally unique to this sport. The regular season being crystallized is what's totally unique to this sport. It doesn't always have to work off the premise of the fact that we're building towards something at the end. And if we're not involved in that, then this in the present doesn't really mean as much. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. When I did radio hits last week and people were asking me, what's your ideal format? They were thinking I was either going to say four, eight or 12. And I told them two. I'd love to go back because I think the sport was a lot healthier when we lived in a time and period where there were two teams, but look, folks were jacked to play in the Gator Bowl. Folks were jacked to play New Year's Day in Florida or play out in the Rose Bowl. Doesn't matter if there's a national championship attached to it. There are going to be a couple of teams out there, and this is still the case and always will be the case, no matter what your postseason structure is, that are way better than everyone else. Some years it's one, some years it's four, but that crowd can go play for a national championship. I'll watch it. You'll watch it. We'll all enjoy it. It'll do a huge number. We don't have to delude the rest of what is most valuable in this sport, that being the regular season, in chasing unicorns. And the unicorn, in this sense, is competitive balance and parity and, and evening out the recruiting landscape. It's, it's, it's never happening. It's not going to happen. Here's the unfortunate part and why people like me get a little worked up about it. I speak in such absolutes because I know it's not going to happen. I mean, I'm as certain about that as I am the sun coming up tomorrow. That's not the debate in my mind. What debate in my mind is, is what do we do when we get there and the rest of these folks realize this was fool's gold and we just enriched a lot of the bow tie sweater vest crowd who told us this is what's best for college football and then you come to that realization. Wait a second. It turns out what's best for college football actually meant what's best for them. And I'm looking around and I don't like what the sport is now, but then you look behind you and guess what you don't see? You don't see a bridge. It's out. The bridge is burned. You can't go back. And then folks like me who never wanted to cross it to begin with are looking around and you can't even say I told you so because even that's pointless when you get to that point. So that is my general take on why I don't want expansion. Uh, it, it's, also, it's also understandable, even though I disagree with it, when you guys come to me and you think to yourself and you tell me you love the regular season our approach would give you more to love in the regular season because there would be more games with playoff implications riding on them. The second part of your sentence is true. The first part is not. You're assuming that the value of that playoff is always the same. You're assuming that the value of one of those playoff spots always will mean what it means right now. And it won't. You cannot decrease the scarcity of those spots and maintain the value of them. You can't. It'll take a few years once we get into that, so we may be talking about like 2030 by the time this happens, but there'll come a day where those playoff spots don't even mean as much. And then all of a sudden, you got a huge problem on your hands, and I'm not going down this road tonight, but, you know, once upon a time, not too long ago, like a decade ago, it would have been ludicrous to ever assume that any player was going to entertain the idea of opting out of a New Year's Six caliber bowl game. Now it's regular. And so I would say right now, it's totally ludicrous to ever assume that a player would consider opting out of a playoff game. And for right now, it is ludicrous. And for a while, in an expanded playoff, it'd be ludicrous. But there would come a time where your expectations about how the playoff plays out would be recalibrated. And there would also come a time where your value that you place on playoff spots would recalibrate. And then you would be in the new college football world. And once it became known, in everyone's mind that those playoff spots aren't really worth what they used to be worth. And these teams get blown out every playoff anyway. Once we got to that point and you had a kid with millions of dollars on the line and all of a sudden we've come to expect that that nine seed's going to get run. That 11 seed's going to get run. It happens every year. All of a sudden, all it has to do is happen once. 
have the phrase meaningless playoff game floated out there and have the concept of a playoff opt-out floating out there. And it is wildfire. It takes off and it's there to stay. And you look back again, you say, how do we get rid of this? What do we do? There is nothing. It's like westward expansion. You know, if you don't like New York, you can move to Missouri. You don't like Missouri. Might I suggest the Rockies? You don't like the Rockies. Check out San Francisco. You can't move any further west. And so once you get to that, that fabled, that fabled kind of um, 12 team utopia of a playoff expansion that everyone or a lot of people at least think is the answer to all of college football's problems and it doesn't work out, you have nowhere else to go and you can't go back either. So humbly, calmly as I can, that's my take on that and why I kind of get worked up about it sometimes. So I'll see you in 2022 and three and four and five and we'll see what happens down the road. Today I walked in the office. I had a number of talks with Jesse. Some were just about life. I think that's why he comes in early. And then others were about the show. I was kind of floating some ideas and bouncing some concepts off of him. And then I got to this piece of paper, which is always blank, because as I told you, our friends at Academy trust me enough to not make me stick to the ad copy. I can go any direction I want. And so we were talking about how to best encapsulate what Academy means to the show. And Jesse said, paraphrasing, of course, you would never know if I wasn't. He wouldn't even call me on it. He said something along the lines of, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I had never heard of or shopped at Academy until I came down here. And it's true that Academy is somewhat of a regional brand. Now, I grew up in the South. I've always been around Academy Sports and Outdoors, but I take it for granted that some of you, kind of like the Chattahoochee River, some of you just think it's part of a country music song. You don't know that it's actually a place down here we grew up on. Well, with Academy, Academy is like the retail version of the Chattahoochee. Some of you have heard of it in name only, but you've never darkened the doors of one. And Jesse was one of those folks. Now, Jesse is, Jesse has come over to the, the right side of the fence now, but I know a lot of you have never had the opportunity to visit one. Well, that's why I always emphasize academy.com. Because the good news is you can still get everything at academy.com that you can in a physical Academy Sports and Outdoors. I'm in Nashville, or if you're Atlanta or Columbus, the places I've spent a lot of time, we got them. But if you're in Barstow, California, if you're in Olympia, Washington, I don't know, maybe you don't have one. Pocatello, Idaho, or Pocatella, the feminine version of Idaho. If you are in those locations, maybe you don't have one, but you do have academy.com. And as I have told you for the last several weeks, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of having that turnover period now in the seasons. And a lot of you are out there starting a lot of different outdoor activities. Do it and go to Academy Sports and Outdoors or academy.com. They'll fully equip you. There is an ongoing debate in the office right now about whether or not some of us, I won't put a number out there, some of us should enter a spring softball league in Nashville. Coincidentally, I'm looking for information on rec men's league softball in Nashville. Church or open, I'm fine with it. Hit me up. You know how to get in touch with me. If you don't, there's the information on the bottom of the screen. Academy Sports and Outdoors, though, I can tell you it's where we will go. Whether we play or not, we will go, and I encourage you to do the same. Moving right along here, I made a little executive decision and I, yes, okay, so I told the crew, all right, I didn't want to go out of order. The Mood Tracker has become our most popular segment. The Mood Tracker we do to take the temperature of fan bases. And I really think that a lot of the gambling crowd values this, but also the hardcore college football crowd values this, even if I'm not talking about your team, because it really helps to have a firm grasp on the overall sport. And I have found that a lot of times fan bases, even though they may not be right about predicting specific wins and losses, they usually always have a much more advanced feel on their program, and they are in tune with the stuff that the rest of the country is going to find out six months to a year down the road. So with that in mind, the LSU mood tracker falls upon us tonight. Culture, as I was talking about earlier, culture is great. I mean, culture is great in sports, but college football is built on it. And if you've never been able to take road trips, if you've never gone to, to strange campuses and strange stadiums, and experience new people and fan bases for the first time, you kind of only get it in theory. If you've been blessed or fortunate enough to go on the road and visit different venues and places, you get that what may be commonplace in Blacksburg, Virginia, may be totally weird in Corvallis, Oregon, and vice versa. And I can confidently tell you, having spent a lot of time in Baton Rouge, to put a finer point on it, what is accepted and commonplace in Baton Rouge may terrify the rest of the country. 
But that's beautiful because that's culture. There are some things that are routinely seen on a Saturday night in Death Valley that would probably land you in a penitentiary, a penitentiary in other parts of the country. But that's okay because that's culture. But as we tie that in conceptually with the mood tracker, there are some things that may make a fan base on this pinpoint on the map happy, whereas at that pinpoint, they may reject it wholesale. Well, Brian Kelly's the new head coach at LSU, so what do we think about that? The LSU mood tracker, I went over to go 24-7 earlier today, and I asked the message board there, give me your thoughts. LSU football, my current mood towards LSU football is what? I got reboot and rebuild. I got fresh. I got underestimated. I got overlooked, optimistic, positive. So there is a general positive tilt towards LSU football right now. And I took all that and I put it in the blender, and I'll tell you what I poured out. The current LSU football mood to me is closing the gates. Think about LSU for a second when they've been good. What is your most vivid memory of the best LSU teams? Take that, and then I want you to think about how it doesn't blend in at all. When LSU football is operating at max capacity, it doesn't blend in. Quite the opposite. It stands out, and it's got a very unique feel to it. That's culture. It's got a very unique look to it. It's like if you sliced the state of Louisiana open, everything that poured out is what you'd see Saturday night on the field in Death Valley. That's LSU football at its best. And it has a lot to do with Louisiana, but that's also why when Brian Kelly came in the door and started doing some things that made a lot of the rest of the country laugh or make fun of him, I never talked about it a lot on the show. If you noticed that, and a lot of you did because you asked about it, there were two reasons. First reason, it's not going to matter on Saturdays in the fall. This is not a guy without a resume. Brian Kelly's already won, so his way works. I have no doubt about that. But the second part, and the main reason why I didn't talk about it, is because I knew LSU folks don't care, nor should they care. By the very nature of what makes LSU football what it is when it's at its best, you should never care what anyone outside of the gates are saying about you. And so LSU football thinks, and I agree with them, they got the right guy to lead the program. The only thing they need to do once they got him in-house is close the gates behind him. Because the way LSU is going to go about doing things, it may not suit you if you're in Fargo, North Dakota. It may look a little weird if you're in Springfield, Missouri. That's fine. Because the fact of the matter is, as history has shown, there's a blueprint that works in Louisiana that may not work at those other places. But when it works, it works really well. And I want to go back to a couple of the submissions on the Go 24-7 board that overlooked, optimistic, underappreciated, those kinds of moods you normally hear from programs that are perennial underdogs. And you normally hear that from fan bases that are used to not being able to get premier talent, so they're always adopting an us-against-the-world mentality, and they are overlooked, and they are doubted. And I think of Mark D'Antonio under, at Michigan State, like they perfectly encapsulated that. Well, here's the benefit. LSU does fit this description right now. There are a lot of people out there who doubt LSU under Brian Kelly. I want to make it crystal clear I'm not one of them, but a lot of people do. I will have this phone light up with friends of mine who disagree with what I'm saying right now. And I'll get off the air and they'll give me all sorts of, well, that's not going to work down here, blah, blah, blah. Uh, same ones who said the same thing about Urban Meyer at Florida once upon a time. Hadn't heard back from them about that. And I'll ignore it. Because I'm looking around and I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second. So we got a guy who has long established a winning pedigree. And we're going to put him in one of the most talent-rich areas imaginable. And they're not going to have to take a back seat to anyone. And so they're going to acquire elite talent. And that talent's going to be given to a guy whose approach has already been proven to work. And people are overlooking him. People are going to doubt him. Now, I'm not talking about just 2022. I'm talking about in general. Like a lot of you are watching the show right now. And you flat out do not think Brian Kelly is going to pan out at LSU. That's your opinion. I disagree with it. But I'm telling you, when I disagree with it, I got a whole lot of, I got a whole lot of data on this Wikipedia page. And I got a whole lot these eyeballs have seen uh, from a logic-based standpoint that back up that feeling that Brian Kelly is going to work out at LSU. And as best I can tell, the retort to that is, well, I didn't like those videos early on. I didn't like the dancing. And that accent sounded weird. It's foolishness. That's just January, February nonsense. It doesn't matter. You won't even be thinking about that by the time spring practice arrives, much less when it's week four and it's like third and eight in the third quarter against their first SEC opponent. Nobody cares about that stuff. It doesn't matter. You know as well as I do, if you follow the sport for a long time, 
there's talking season, and then there's time to strap it up. And when it's time to strap it up, no one ever remembers what was said during talking season, even at SEC media days. The reason why I look for every excuse to skip the event every year is because it doesn't matter. It's a time filler. It's great to see old friends. But think about how many shows start with biggest takeaways from SEC Media Day. What stood out the most at SEC Media Day? And everything that's talked about on those shows is forgotten. It evaporates because it doesn't matter. It's words. What matters are results. LSU's going to get results, the ones they like under Brian Kelly. The mood down there, though, close the gates. And don't worry for a second about what anyone else is saying about you, especially if you are native to Louisiana. You deal with this all the time. I mean, where in the world's Eli Apple right now? How about the comments he had about New Orleans recently? He's an outsider. This, what Eli Apple thought about New Orleans matters about as much as what any sports writer or anyone sitting behind a microphone thinks about LSU and Brian Kelly. What you think matters, because it's your program. What they do down there matters, it's their program. No one worried about what anyone's saying. And I'm not even from Louisiana, and I've been down there enough to know that. So the current mood around LSU football, close the gates, and then throw away the key. Don't even worry about it. Speaking of putting together a staff, I'm going to pause for a second, mainly so we can cut the video. Mario Cristobal's gotten pretty serious pretty quickly about this staff down at Miami. Now, I want to pause for a second. I want to bring something up. So I had a buddy of mine who is a big Miami fan, and he brought something to my attention the other day. He said, you need to go check this out. So he sent me a link to our friends over at Kane's Insight. It's a big Miami website, and they got a popular message board over there. And there was a seven-page deep thread about the interview that we did with Mario Cristobal a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night. We had him on the show. He spent a good 20 minutes with us. Very enlightening. Ton of meat on the bone in that interview. If you haven't seen it, go search it. It's on the channel right now. Our friends at Kane's Insight were talking about that. And then it got into this fascinating debate about how old I am. And they linked to the wrong Wikipedia page because that dude who created Outer Banks is still getting confused with me. We got to fix it and we're going to fix it. But in the meantime, there are folks out there who have no clue how old I am. Well, I'm going to tell you tonight how old I am. I'm going to say a friendly hello to our friends at Kane's Inside. I know this will get over there, but I'm going to tell you how old I am. I'm old enough to remember when Mario Cristobal couldn't put together a staff at Miami. That's how old I am. That feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? In reality, it's only a few weeks ago. But boy, things sure have changed down in Coral Gables. I interrupt that foolishness to break this news for you. Mario Cristobal may have the best staff in the ACC right now. Hold on. Hold on. I know a lot of you are pushing back. I know they had not coached a game yet. I get all that. And so for the sake of avoiding a very unnecessary debate, let's just safely call this one of the best staffs in the SEC or ACC. I put a poll out there a little while ago. It's not a poll. It was actually a statement. And I asked you guys, it's on Twitter right now. I only did this like an hour ago. I simply asked you, who has the best staff in the ACC? Now, some of you who wanted to overthink the room started talking basketball and promptly got blocked. I'll unblock you tomorrow. But there's no room for basketball when this sport has no offseason. <sighs> Juwan Howard, though, paid state material. Yeesh. Anyway, back to uh, the sport at hand. I asked you guys, who has the best coaching staff in the ACC right now? Vast majority of you said Miami. Now, look, I got a lot of respect for Wake Forest and the staff they have. I think very highly of North Carolina staff. Dabo at Clemson is always going to have a good staff. There's a lot of unknown about that staff right now. But look, there is no staff out there, I think this is safe to say, that is definitively better than the collection that Mario Cristobal has put together. So here's what's happening. And then I'm going to tell you why it is very, very important, not just for Miami fans, but for all of America, for all of the college football public. You know this has been a focal point on this show for a while. And there's that beautiful Miami B-roll. Really, I cover Miami just so we can look at the B-roll of the fans and the city. So look, I first want to show you who he's hired. Here is the current Miami coaching staff. And I think we've got it on graphic. And so I want you to look at this list of names now. You've got Josh Gaddis as the offensive coordinator. Kevin Steele now is the defensive coordinator. Uh, he's got Kevin Smith there running backs. They just brought in Adai, Jamel Adai, to coach uh, DBs from Georgia. Frank Ponce is the passing game coordinator. Charlie Strong recently hired as linebackers coach. Aaron Feld came all the way from Oregon. He used to be on the Georgia staff. He's strength and conditioning. So look, 
A lot of these names you recognize, maybe some you don't. Here's what Mario Cristobal's done with this staff. First thing he did is he went and got a whole bunch of guys who have coached under Nick Saban. Now that's important for two reasons as it pertains to this Miami staff. Number one, it's because obviously you want folks who have seen that process play out firsthand up close. But here's the second thing. They appreciate the grind and they're not scared away by it. Mario Cristobal's probably had some guys on his staff in his first few years as a head coach at FAU and then at Oregon that were turned off a little bit by what that grind entails. You don't have to worry about that because if you've ever worked for Nick Saban, then that's, that's irrelevant. A guys just assume that's part of the job. So guys embracing that grind, he's not going to have to worry about that with this crew. And most of these guys have been around the block, but there's also a healthy collection of youth and experience in this crew. But first and foremost, these are recruiters. These are guys that know how to go get the groceries. Meemaw used to say all the time, you cannot cook a five-star meal with an empty fridge. Mario Cristobal knows that. And so now this is setting up to where it would very much surprise me if Miami didn't have the best talent roster in the conference by 2024. What they do with that is its own discussion. But Miami is about to recruit at a top five level every cycle. Of that, I'm virtually certain. But then I want to ask you this. When's the last time you watched any staff get put together in the ACC and it made you go, whoa. It normally happens in the SEC. Lincoln Riley may do it, you know, when Steve Sarkeesian gets to Texas, some of those big programs, they may do it. That hadn't been happening in the ACC. It's happening right now, though, in South Florida. And I also want you to remember the status quo has changed. See, Mario Cristobal just spent about half a decade out on the West Coast, in the Pacific Northwest, no less, proving to you that he is elite at convincing guys to leave home. Now, he's put together a staff of all-world recruiters, and their task is simply to convince kids to stay home. Judging by my own history, it's a lot easier to convince folks to stay home than it is to leave home. But I mentioned the college football public, and I mentioned America, and how this is important for everyone. And you may be sitting in Lincoln tonight thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Nebraska football? You know, or Tennessee or anywhere else. What does this have to do with us? Good for them. Or you, maybe you doubt them, but it's irrelevant. That's Miami. This is my program. We led the show tonight talking about the playoff, right? And everyone has told you and given you their theories on what it's going to take to have parity and competitive balance in college football. And 95% of it is, it's, it's fool's gold at best. And it's totally ignorant at worst. But this, this actually has substance to it. If you ever change the recruiting dynamic in South Florida, and you can ever, not shut it off, but just limit the ability of Georgia and Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama to come into South Florida and out-recruit in-state programs for the top talent in South Florida, think about the reset button in many ways that that hits on college football. Because if you watch Georgia versus Bama, or you watch Bama versus Clemson, or Bama versus Ohio State, there was, a, there was a national championship. Alabama won, I think it was against Ohio State. The entire secondary was from South Florida. Like, how insane is that? That's got to stop. That's what you got to stop. If you want competitive balance, let Nick Saban take a few less five stars per cycle from South Florida. Maybe he gets them from somewhere else. Maybe he's already got enough embarrassment of riches where it doesn't impact him. It's not going to help him anymore. It's certainly not going to help Clemson or help Georgia that they've got one or two less elite kids per cycle that they can take. This is not just a solo job. Miami needs some help in achieving this for the overall balance of college football. Uh, Billy Napier, like I, I've got a lot of hope in what they're doing with their staff. I'm still very much in the remains to be seen camp with Florida State. But Miami is chief among this group because Miami is the program in South Florida. Miami is the program that when they've been at their best, have established the blueprint of owning South Florida. They've done it before. There's no reason they can't do it again. It's just that they had to step up to the plate. Miami finally stepped up to the plate. But this baseball season just started. They stepped up to the plate, man. Like, you, no one ever gets a hit if they're not in the batter's box. Miami finally stepped into the batter's box. And now, look, folks are going to bring heat. That's not going to change. Like, Clemson's not going to stop trying. Uh, just as Nick Saban and Ryan Day and Kirby Smart, they're not going to stop coming into South Florida. It's just that they're finally going to get some pushback. They're finally going to know, I guarantee you for a while, unless they really did their homework, I guarantee you Kirby and Ryan Day and Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban, they probably didn't even have the ability to name Miami's entire staff. 
because that's how irrelevant Miami had become recruiting against the big boys when they came into South Florida. That day is over. This is a totally new day. So they're still going to win their fair share down there. Miami's going to win their fair share too. But at the very least, you take notice now. And if you are an agnostic fan, if you're an Arizona fan or you're a Colorado fan and you're just tired of seeing the same programs dominate, don't let folks tell you an expanded playoff is going to change that because it's not. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's not. But I'll tell you what could fundamentally change it. If recruiting in Florida changed, that could fundamentally change it. And then I'll do you one better. What if Mario Cristobal and his staff take a huge chunk of the in-state talent in South Florida and Lincoln Riley starts owning Southern California and Jimbo and Steve Sarkeesian lock down Texas more so than it has been in the past? What would that do? Because there is reason, if you think about every program I just listed, there is reason at least to believe the recruiting dynamics in Southern California, Texas, and South Florida are all well on the path to changing, to some degree, over the next few years. If you see a change in the overall power structure, and if you see a change in the competitive balance, and you want to know, how are these upsets happening? Or how is there no two or three groups of teams that have separated themselves in the pack? Check out the rosters and see how many less FLAs you see next to those starting defensive backs and wide receivers and, and everybody. I mean, Alex Leatherwood was from down there. They, they, got every, they got every position at IMG Academy alone, much less South Florida. So keep an eye on this. This is important. Unlike some of the stuff they tell you is important, that's actually important. Speaking of one of those coaches we were just talking about, we had a question the other day. Uh, Colin, I'll give you a good endpoint here in just a second, but this is going to be a really good clip. All right, here we go, Colin. So we had a question about a clip that was surfacing from Nick Saban. Nick Saban was doing a speaking engagement last week, and he was with the high school coaches across the state of Alabama. And this has been a function for several years now where Nick Saban's a featured speaker, and you usually get some really, really good sound because even though it's being recorded, Saban's talking amongst his peer group, coaches, to put a finer point on it. And he's always really open. So we had a question, and this was from T. Bob Bob Bob, three Bobs. And he said, could you speak on one of your shows about what you think the purpose of Nick Saban calling out three players for being the reason for the national championship loss was? To motivate everyone? Or was it some other purpose? That is not like him to do this. So why have me summarize it? I actually just have the video. So we'll roll the video and then I'll talk about it on the other side. Let's take a look. All right, we lost the national championship game. All right, because basically, you know, we had three corners out, both starters and the best backup. All right, so we're playing with some guys that didn't have a lot of experience. And it eventually got us in the fourth quarter. All right, and we had the kind of team where we had a really good quarterback and we wanted to have skill guys that they couldn't guard. So we had two that were really, really good, Mechie and JMO, And they both got hurt. So now we were playing with guys that typically didn't have to play at those positions. So the lesson to be learned was there were three guys, and I'm not calling out any names, I, that basically didn't do the things they needed to do throughout the season. Right, because they were frustrated with their circumstance. And this is a story that you should take back to your team so players understand it. So they're frustrated with their circumstance because they're not playing as much as they want to. They're outcome-oriented. They want to worry about how many balls they catch or how much playing time they get or whatever it is. So they don't focus every day on being a complete player at their position, and they don't work and practice and prepare for the games because they say to themselves, why should I do this? I'm not going to play anyway. So we had three guys. They all had a significant role in the national championship game. And not one of them, not one, could take advantage of the opportunity that they had. Because they never ground through it. They never made themselves the best player they can be. And when they got the opportunity, they couldn't do it. It's a lesson for everybody. What comes first? Playing time? Or making sure that you're ready to play and create value for yourself when you get the opportunity. It's a scene from The Sopranos. It's beautiful. Look, so uh, people had varying reactions to this, of course. I'll give you mine in a second, but I do want to address an alarming amount of reactions on the other side that I saw in my DMs and I saw when I posted it on Twitter. A lot of people, a lot of people called it whining. 
And then some other people thought that it was inappropriate to call kids out like that. Mind you, no one was mentioned by name, although I pretty well guess who he's talking about. I want to uh, ask you something. Just as I asked producer Jesse when I was workshopping this segment, I asked him, what can you do with a loss after it's already happened? Because you can't go back and change it. And sure, you could just leave it back there. You could burn the tape and never watch it. Or you could do the reasonable thing and use it and get every bite of meat off that bone you can as a tool with which to grow from. And so Nick Saban is the best in the world, the best that I've ever seen in this game at using a loss to build upon for a future season and just development overall of players. So I want you to think about putting yourself in a coach's shoes for a second, because this was a problem for them this year. You know, a lot of folks watch Alabama and they win all the time. So you think, oh, they're void of the drama that exists in other college football programs and locker rooms. No, they're not. They've won titles. They've won titles before and had guys fighting on the sideline. Look, they've got the same issues everyone else does. In fact, they've got different consequences for their success because they got the kind of talent and therefore egos in their locker room very few other programs have. He's just better at dealing with it than everyone else. He's mastered that process. That's why he talks about that process word so much. But I want you to imagine that you're a coach, okay? And I want you to put yourself on the practice field one day and you've got all world talent coming in. Here's what those guys think. Even if they don't think they're owed a starting position, once they show they can do something, they absolutely think that they're owed a starting position. Here's what happens in an Alabama practice. What happens in an Alabama practice oftentimes is you'll get five-star talent that comes in, and even though they may be freshmen and they may not be starting, it may be that they have more natural God-given ability than the guy that's ahead of them on the depth chart. And what they'll do with that God-given ability is they'll flash in practice. And they'll make a one-handed catch here, or they'll make an insane read on a ball there, and they've shown they can do it right. And in their mind, because it hasn't been developed any further, since I've shown I can do it right, and I've shown I have more talent than the guy in front of me, I belong in a starting position. And when they don't get it, they adopt what Nick Saban would call the poor me's. Here's the difference. Now you're a coach. And if you're a coach, what do you trust? Like, what do you deem necessary to put a guy on the field? Are you going to put a guy on the field once he shows you he can do it right? Or are you going to wait until he shows you he's so good he seldom does it wrong? Because that's what a coach is looking for, and that's where the disconnect is sometimes between the talented players and the coaches. Player shows I can do it right. I belong on the field. Coach looks at him and says, well, yeah, but you dropped three more balls, and you came up two yards short of the sticks on fourth down work we just had a second ago. You showed me also you can do it wrong a whole lot. It's, it's not a highlight reel. Highlight culture is what the typical person thinks in terms of. Coaches, when they watch film, they don't watch highlight reels. They watch every play. And that's why sometimes a guy that you think is ready to start and who himself thinks he's ready to start may not be ready to start. Well, they had this in their locker room this year. And you watch Alabama football this past year when you had Devontae Smith go off to the NFL draft and you had, uh, in the past couple of years, Jalen Waddell and Jerry Judy. You had all those guys, Henry Ruggs, they go off to the NFL draft. And then you brought in the number one ranked receiver class. And so a lot of people, I was one of them. A lot of folks thought those freshmen, just like those past freshmen, they will seamlessly transition. And by the midpoint of the season, they'll have two or three true freshmen starting for them. Well, it didn't happen that way. And instead, they went and got a dynamite transfer named Jamison Williams out of Ohio State. And he started and he's going to be a first round draft pick because of it. They had John Mechie, who was a technician and a phenomenal perimeter blocker. Uh, probably an underappreciated facet of his game that they missed every bit as much as his pass catching ability when he did go down. But then you think to yourself, well, certainly they're going to be okay because they have depth behind them. I remember all those five-star ready kids. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. Now you can either ask yourself, well, isn't that Nick Saban and his coaching staff's fault for not having them ready? Or you can say, well, maybe those kids can't be ready until mentally they are ready to be ready. There's only so much you can do at some point. Well, you can tell Nick Saban's got to that point with those guys. It doesn't matter that they're still freshmen. A lot of those guys, whereas most other coaching staffs out there, because they're terrified of losing their jobs, would be begging those guys not to transfer. Nick Saban took a mic. You realize what he just did? He took a microphone and through the media openly dared those guys to transfer. He doesn't care. He wants it to work out. But the thing about it is, if you're not wired the right way from the neck up, it doesn't matter what talent God gave you. Because if you're not taking care of your end of the bargain, 
they've got no use for you. And so Nick Saban takes the total opposite approach. It's what makes him one of the best of all time. Julio Jones told a story one time, Saban's first full recruiting cycle at Alabama, when he didn't even have any talent, uh, the likes of which he has now in the locker room. He walks in Julio Jones' living room and says, I'm going to win with you. I'm going to win without you. I want you to be a part of what we do. It's going to happen either way. And Julio Jones commits to Alabama. It's always been that way with him. It's not changing. But right now, like what fascinates me about that whole thing is a lot of coaches would either remain mum on this. They certainly would never go public with it. And even in private conversations, they're probably baby guys along. And Nick Saban goes scorched earth and tells people in no uncertain terms, you're going to do it our way or I don't need you here. Don't care how many stars were next to your name. You need to move on. And he just dares them. And the beauty of it is because it's a natural filtration process. It's the same way in recruiting. When you don't promise playing time and you tell guys you're going to have to compete against the best in the world to ever get on the field here, if that's not for you, Alabama's not for you or Georgia's not for you, Ohio State's not for you. When you recruit like that, you filter out the guys who are mentally weak. But then sometimes guys get through that filter and then they're on campus and they're on your roster. Then you deal with it like this because this is another filtration process. And the fact of the matter is everyone in that locker room knows who he's talking about, including the guys who are responsible for that statement. They're going to do one of two things. They will respond overwhelmingly positive to it and they'll be better for it. And two years from now, when they're playing for another title, ESPN will do a, a pre-game feature where those kids are telling you, boy, I hated it at the time. That was one of the best things that ever happened. That's where my career turned. That'll happen or they'll transfer after spring practice. One of the two things will happen. So what he wants to know is he wants to know now. He's not interested in having dead weight on his roster for another two years. And then, you know, you kind of got a guy who never fulfilled expectations, but he just took up a scholarship for three or four years. Not the way it's going to happen at Alabama. So there's going to be that filtration process. That's all that was. So to answer the question from T-Bob Bob Bob, I wasn't surprised at all. He does this. He just doesn't do it routinely because it has to maintain its impact when it does happen. But I loved it. Like I'm, I'm always for coaches doing that. This is a bottom line business. You cannot ask to be treated like a grown man, but then when you don't do what grown men are supposed to do, expect to be treated like a kid. You got to choose one lane or the other. If you want to be treated like a kid, that's cool. You're not going to get a scholarship there. But if you're full ride scholarship to play football at Alabama, your days of being a boy are in high school. Like this is grown man time. And if you don't fulfill your end of the deal, when they're giving you every tool imaginable to succeed, you're going to get called out and you either deal with it and grow from it or you hit the road and go find somewhere else to play. I think that's fair. That's the worst part is when someone's not clear and not brutally honest with you. That's the worst place to be in. There's no doubt where Nick Saban stands when it comes to any of those guys he called out. No doubt whatsoever. Balls in their court. Always has been. Always will be. That's our show tonight. We appreciate you watching. Make sure you let me know. Some of you just tuned in. We're doing something with Twitter Spaces. Now, I want to be consistent with it, and I want, to, I want to be convenient with it. So let me know. I'm open. I'm going to listen this whole week, and I'll probably, probably decide something later this week. What do we want to do with it? Do we want to do something consistently with it? What time of day or week do we want to do it? So I'm going to be listening, taking your suggestions, and I'll let you know what comes out. Until then, for Producer Jesse, for Director Colin, our entire production executive team, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your week. Thanks for watching, and God bless.